Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 109 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we're talking about a topic we often mention, but we haven't really done a deep dive on this one. We're going to talk all about liver function today. So your liver, we know, is one of your largest and definitely hardest working organs in the body, and it has so many different jobs. Today we'll be diving into what our liver does, how to assess its function, and how to support optimal liver function with both food as medicine and supplementation. A lot to cover, and like Becky said, we've alluded to the liver in pretty much... I don't know. I'd say at least 60 episodes or so as far as if we're talking about micronutrient deficiencies or if we're talking about stress and detox influence on the body. So I'm really excited to get into some deep levels of ANP, biochemistry, all of the fun things and um, delightfully overwhelm you guys with all things liver. Yes, hopefully not too nerdy biochemy. We'll try to break it down to normal <laughs> human speak, but we might, know. we might go there. Uh, so Allie, let's just start off with the basics. Where is the liver actually found in the body and what would you say are its main categories of function? So it is quite a sizable gland, about, about three pounds of weight, if you will, and it's in the upper right quadrant of our abdomen. So upper right side when you're touching your own body. And it's the second largest organ after the skin actually. Um, so by weight, quite sizable at three pounds and its function is quite significant. It has 500 plus known functions in the body. It plays a very important role in our metabolic function and in our digestive function as the producer of bile, helping us to emulsify or absorb and gather fats. Uh, it plays a huge role in our metabolic function as far as building and excreting, playing a role with nutrient storage, detoxification. It has a dynamic role on our immune system and regulation of a lot of particular immune compounds, which we'll get to. And then even beyond metabolism of digestion, nutrient storage, delivery, and detox, it also plays a dynamic role with blood sugar. So that whole concept of gluconeogenesis or production of sugar in times without um, is produced by the liver. And uh, the liver also is going to make that glycogen or that storage form of our glucose. So a lot of blood sugar metabolism is, is associated within the liver. And then remember the liver, if you're not using sugar as your primary fuel, is also the gland that produces ketones. So it is a metabolic builder for compounds that we use as fuel source. And I generally like to refer to the liver as the UPS of the body. And, and what I mean by that is basically everything that we digest or break down, all of that blood flow that's absorbed from our intestinal lining, 
all goes up to the liver for the liver to determine what goes where. And so it's going to package, it's going to shift some of the molecules by um, metabolic changes. It's going to deliver certain nutrients to different areas of the body. And it's going to determine which things don't fit and set them up for excretion. Sure. It's like throwing out the junk mail, that last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the junk mail becomes yep. fat storage. If it, sure. if it gets backed up, it starts spilling out. Exactly. Sure. Okay, awesome. I like that analogy. I think that helps to conceptualize a lot of these other functions that we're going to get into. But let's go deep. Let's unpack each of these main functions, starting with digestion. So what role does the liver have in our digestive process? So a term you might hear me say a couple times today is hepatocytes. Um, or if I call something a hepatotoxin. So um, hepatocytes are cells of our liver. And um, when we're talking, or hepatitis, inflammation of the liver, right? And so that that term is, is going to be inclusive within discussion of the liver. Um, and uh, when we're talking about our digestive function first, our bile is produced from the hepatocytes in the liver or the liver cells. And then the bile is going to gather in our bile ducts and pass through the bile ducts to be stored in the gallbladder, which is the, the storage tank of bile, which is supposed to be used on demand based on the fat consumption. So when we talk about people getting gallbladder stones or having gallbladder attacks, Often, this occurs after an extended uh, low-fat diet, very counterintuitive. A lot of people are concerned about high fats. It's actually the, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. If you have an extended uh, low-fat diet, excuse me, um, or fat-restricted diet, especially exacerbated if you see weight loss during that process, we tend to see sluggish function in the gallbladder. And then when we have higher fat, there can be distress. Um, and so in a functional bile situation, when we have fat, bile is produced. The bile pushes out from the gallbladder to kind of spurt out to help to gather the fat, just like soap removes dirt. It works in that emulsification so we can absorb the fats, the fat-soluble nutrients, and have nice, well-formed stools. Um, and then the liver actually communicates with other digestive organs as well. It's constantly receiving information about levels of available nutrients through that intestinal uh, gut blood barrier. And um, it also is going to be identifying threats of exotoxins or things that we consume like prescription medications, heavy metals that could be in our food system, or actually even things that are used dermally, like on our skin products, or even breathed in, all of that's going to eventually pass into the bloodstream. And then the liver is the primary gland that deals with, again, that upregulation of excretion if it's, if it's a, a burden to the body. Okay. And we'll circle back, I think, on bile production in a little bit, as I think that's super important to understand how to support healthy bile flow, um, especially in a high-fat diet model. Um, but let's talk a little bit about metabolism and blood sugar balance, because I think that ties into the next part of digestion. So uh, where all these things go and how the liver packages and processes carbs, lipids, and proteins. So yeah, as our, so the beginning of our digestive process is like the chewing, the breaking down, right? So we have, we, we take a bite of food, we chew it, hopefully <laughs> enough times to swallow, make a bolus and swallow that food 
compound uh, bite. And then in our stomach, that gastric tank is where we're supposed to have that perfect amount of hydrochloric acid. Um, this is important because this does cleave and break down food particles. It's also going to activate enzymes. And enzymes are coming through the pancreas to also mix um, as we're kind of neutralizing that hydrochloric acid and starting to move foods into the small intestine from that, that stomach pouch. Um, once foods pass into the small and large intestine, right away we can start to absorb. That's the first part of absorption is in the intestinal tract. And along our, our gut lining, we have that barrier um, of the microvilli. And along these tiny villi, we have little uh, vessels which pull nutrients into the bloodstream. And all that bloodstream flow goes through this kind of superhighway called the hepatic portal vein. And this is the primary vein that drives all of these nutrients or compounds. Maybe, they're, maybe they are toxins, but compounds that have passed that gut-blood barrier up through the hepatic portal vein. And that's where the liver is then responsible for metabolizing these macronutrients of carbs, fats, and proteins to make useful materials for the body. And then that's also where the liver will get potentially stressed from a diet that is excess in glucose. Um, and in this sense, what will happen is our hepatocytes or our liver cells will absorb as much glucose as it can in the form, form of glycogen, which is a stored form of blood sugar. The, the liver holds a lot of glycogen and then there's extra glycogen stored in the muscles. Um, and, and that's where we talk about like post-workout recovery, potentially having a little bit of carb to replete the glycogen that was burned out. There's definitely different performance in the muscle if we're run more on fat, but that's a whole separate episode. But glycogen is the storage of glucose primarily held in the liver, somewhat in the muscles. And what happens is, is if there's too much beyond the glycogen, the glycogen storage is filled and there's still excess glucose, then the liver is going to start to package that into triglycerides and other fatty substrates um, to kind of do away with the excess of fuel. So that's one way that the, the liver plays a dynamic role is the liver can actually package fats from excess sugar. Um, and then in a state of rest or blood sugar drop, especially if someone is not keto adapted, the liver is going to, to maintain that homeostasis, produce sugar and release it into the bloodstream. Okay. Got it. That's a lot right there. <laughs> yeah, and, and then the liver itself, like I said, so that's just how it works with sugar. Yeah, just sugar. And the liver, the liver itself, right, still works with fatty acids. So the fatty acids that pass through into the liver are going to be absorbed into liver cells, um, metabolized more directly into ATP or, or active form of energy. And then um, we can even convert glycerol, which is a, a lipid component, into active glucose through that process of gluconeogenesis. And that's what would be upregulated when we're going through a blood sugar drop, um, that process of needing to produce glucose from, from that glycerol um, uh, lipid building component. Okay. And then proteins as well. How are dietary proteins handled by the liver? So um, the liver is going to take these amino acids because too large of proteins wouldn't be passing into the um, bloodstream. So these are going to be at that point in, in the form of amino acids. 
And um, the digestive tract hopefully has worked these down appropriately with enzymes. So these are not uh, high taxation to the system. But the hepatic portal vein, again, is going to pull in through the intestinal uh, blood blood barrier there. And those amino acids are going to be requiring metabolic processing to be used as energy source or to be used as maybe, you know, be, be built and um, redistributed for muscle, redistributed for the varied functions, uh, detoxification, really, really based on, again, that UPS determining what's need, what's low, what's high, what can I build, what are my substrates that I have to play with. Um, so it's a, it's a rock and roll, obviously, organ, very sizable, uh, very broad functionality, and really can play with any energy substrate to produce what the body needs for survival. Awesome. So, so many jobs already, and that's really just the the half of it, just the beginning. Um, and then this next one we've covered in, again, so many episodes. Um, what comes to mind is like episode 97 on hangover prevention and talking about alcohol metabolism. Um, but we've also had a ton of detox focus episodes in the past. Um, so let's just very briefly glaze over the the role of the liver in detox. Sure. So the liver is able to recognize toxins and it is supposed to convert them to be excreted from the body. But like we discussed, if there can be an excess overload, um, that hepatic portal circulation can slow down. Um, that can distress the liver, especially if we're in the state of dehydration because the liver is filtering blood. Um, I believe it's like three quarts of blood per minute or something like that. Um, and the liver is, is just constantly filtering through our blood flow and then passing off to the kidneys the compounds that we want to excrete through the urine. The liver can also package compounds to be passed uh, actually back through the colon to be excreted in the stool. Um, and so when we're talking about this process, um, the, the primary toxins, especially those that are water soluble, are easier for the liver to remove. And then when we're talking about, because those get passed on to the kidneys, those are passed through the urine. Um, so things like alcohol. Now, alcohol can disrupt the priorities of the liver, right? So if we drink alcohol, and we talked about this in that episode, the liver, alcohol itself, remember, has its own calorie density. And so consumption of alcohol slows down your body's fat burn because the liver stops from making nutritional ketones and starts to focus more energy on excreting that alcohol. And then that can allow in that lack of fuel, lack of ketone production, a blood sugar drop, which then the liver may compensate with in the middle of the night with a blood sugar surge. Um, not only will that interfere with your body's ability to burn fat, but that also can cause that waking in the middle of the night and the sweats or the shaking um, and, and the blood sugar variances that we may experience, uh, again, even if we're in a state of nutritional ketosis. So the liver prioritizes detox over nutrient production, and that's important to note. And when detox is overburdened, and especially in the form of fat-soluble toxins, those that are from our plastics, which we're realizing now we're finding plastic particles in our table salt, Ugh. Um, we know in our tap water, um, and then the parts per million are quite significant. And then, you know, these um, industrialized toxins that are fat-soluble from our petrochemicals and what have you um, tend to get stored in 
adipocytes or fat cells or fatty tissue deposits. Um, and we can see this also with the, the case of something like a hormone, a steroid toxin, like estrogenic compounds and how those can be taxing to our glands themselves um, and also sit in our adipocytes. Okay. And we've done, like I said, I'll link back to a couple of the the kind of Detox 101 episodes if you guys want to dig deeper into that. Um, and then we'll talk in a bit, I think, about recommendations for a quarterly detox. So let's just hold on that and move on to the liver's capacity in terms of storage. The liver stores glycogen, and as you mentioned, um, what else does is stored in the liver? So the liver is also going to store fatty acids from digested triglycerides or, or fat compounds. And then it's going to be one of the highest storage sites for fat-soluble nutrients for that reason. So definitely vitamin A is one of the big ones to note, which is a very important nutrient when we're talking about prenatal health and we're talking about postpartum health really all fats. Um, we often see in the mama's caring of a child and then creating fuel, nourishment for the child, a lot of essential fatty acid deficiencies. And I think there's a lot of fear associated with that retinoic or bioavailable vitamin A as it being a toxin mm -hmm. um, for fetal development. And um, so there's a, a little bit of a misnomer or confusion about the safety of eating liver I find it to be a very nourishing food um, to aim for about twice a month um, for consumption of pregnant women um, to, to try to have liver, to, to get in that rich, soluble, um, available vitamin A, as well as things like D, E, and K. And then we're going to get all of our B vitamins in their most bioavailable form. So from B12 to folate to um, active forms of nutrients like B6 and all of these cofactors that help regulate our neurotransmitters and brain chemistry, and then mineral rich as well, iron, copper, selenium, all these are great um, nutrients that are going to be maintained within the liver. So we'll get to, at the end, I think we'll wrap up on, on why you might consider eating liver, but our liver itself also is going to be a tissue supply of these nutrients that it can then at need in times of demand as a primary storage, give off those nutrients when other tissues are in higher demand or need. Okay. Awesome. Um, and then what about the role you mentioned the liver playing a role in the immune system? So let's talk about that for a sec. Yeah. So really remarkable, interesting stuff going on here. Um, and so the, the liver actually has these particular cells, uh, cup for cells, and they line the, the vessels of the liver and they function as macrophages, which basically are like the tiny Pac-Men, <laughs> which are able to identify uh, bad bacteria like pathogens um, and actually eat away at um, these compounds. So macro, the, these, these cuffer cells are able to function in this phagocytotic or ability of basically eating away at dysfunctional um, and then doing away with, with the debris. So they actually can capture and digest bacteria, fungus, parasite. Um, they can also uh, work as macrophages on worn out blood cells because we know like ferritin levels can get built up in the body as a marker of inflammation if the body isn't doing a good cleanup, if you will. And that could be a function of a, a, a 
a dysfunctional liver, not cleaning up those worn out blood cells. So we'd get a buildup of ferritin. Uh, we can also see just generalized cellular debris. Um, and so this function on an immunological level regulates both bad overgrowth or presence of uh, pathogen, parasite, bacteria, fungi, and also clean up dysfunctional components within our cellular structure, um, as well as things that are passing through the body. And what it's going to do is actually give that back to this hepatic portal system to then clean up this superhighway blood flow um, to, to excrete the die-off or the cleanup process of that of that Pac-Man function. So it's pretty, pretty awesome. Cool. And then at the same time, the liver's also producing or, or making stuff um, in addition to all of these other things. So what is the liver actually responsible for producing in the body? Yeah. So, and then these can have immunological function as well. So a lot of proteins actually are going to be made by the liver. So things like fibrinogen, prothrombin, um, albumins, which are definitely a big marker of immunological distress and health in the body, uh, maintaining total and pre-albumin levels, um, a big marker of, especially when we're talking about like acute care in the hospital setting. So prothrombin and fibrinogen play a big role with our clotting factor in our blood. They're, they're coagulation regulators. Um, so this is going to be how thin or thick our blood is, if you will, to simplify it. And then the albumins are going to regulate the environment of the blood and, and how isotonic it is. So basically like charge of the blood. Um, and the fluidity of gain or loss of water, which is what regulates basically our cardiovascular system, our blood brain flow, our digestive flow. Um, so pretty central in, in, in survival for certain. And then um, not to go without mentioning uh, cholesterol made by the liver. And so our liver actually produces anywhere from one to two grams per day and um, this can, you know, be varied based on diet. I think there still is discussion on, you know, what drives production and of what types of particles and, and so forth. But um, we can get, we do see reduction of production um, based on diet as much as we can get enhanced production based on diet. And remembering that cholesterol is about 25% of makeup of the brain. Um, cholesterol functions as a steroid building block to produce hormones. So our steroid hormones of our sexual hormones, our cortisol, our vitamin D, and then the bile acids and, and bile, which is going to be made. And, and we've kind of hit on that enough as far as that being the tool to deliver the ability to absorb and break down fats in the diet. Okay. Awesome. And also drive drive detox for sure. Sure. So let's let's dig a little deeper into that bile production. Like what is it actually made of, Ali? I'm sure we're all familiar with, you know, having thrown up at some time or another and kind of tasting <laughs> that yellowy, right? bitter that stuff. yellowy, nasty, bitter stuff. Um, when there's nothing left in our stomach, um, we end yeah. up with that. But like what is it? <laughs> So the liver cells, are those hepatocytes, are to produce about 800 to 1,000 milliliters, which is pretty much of bile per day. And bile is comprised of cholesterol, bile salts, electrolytes, and waste products. 
Um, and so better bile flow can definitely play a role in your regulation of your cholesterol levels. So if you see a dynamic shift in your blood cholesterol, that may be an indication of sluggish bile flow. So you may want to stimulate that. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, like you said, a, a yellow, brownish, olive green, <laughs> give or take the, the variants. Um, but we don't really think of that bile or, or a strong bile to be more in the yellow spectrum. Um, and basically it's collected in small ducts and then passed on to that main bile duct, which carries um, from the gallbladder to the small intestines, um, the, the duodenum, which is that, that entry point. And um, these bile ducts create these biliary trees, which are these kind of branch structures. And this is where within these um, trees, we can sometimes get stagnation if we're not creating stimulation for bioflow with ample fat in the diet. Um, and so there, there's the big, the big ducts and then these small kind of branch like biliary tree structures. And, um, you know, the hepatic ducts, which come from the liver, join this and, and drain the bile away from the liver, again, to kind of hand off to the gallbladder, to hand off to the small intestine, and, and then that's so forth as it works. And that should carry to create, as I mentioned, bowel formation um, down um, in, into the large intestine to help with stool formation. Um, and, and bilirubin is present in bile. This is a product of our liver's digestion when we have worn out red blood cells. Um, and so when we're talking about um, someone being like jaundice or having like yellowing pigmentation um, on, or dark circles under their eyes, these are usually markers of low bilirubin um, or not getting enough bile flow, um, not maybe having excess detoxification distress. Um, and so we can get sluggish liver filtration um, or sluggish bile flow. Um, and we're not getting that circulation or recycling of the heme groups of the iron components in, in the um, hepatocytes. So our, our hepatocytes or our liver cells are going to metabolize hemoglobin. Um, and that's kind of where I talked back about how we can get that buildup of ferritin um, with those dysfunctional cells. So the liver cells metabolize hemoglobin, which is, again, the, the, the red blood cell oxygen carrying pigment. Um, and so there, that's, that's what makes the, the red in our red blood cells. So there's definitely a connection of potential. And then we think of things like hemochromatosis and other genetic variants that can drive iron buildup in the body. Um, but the biggest thing to kind of understand is that bilirubin itself will play a role with bile flow and also with this detoxification of basically dead or dysfunctional cells or the buildup of excess iron stores in the body. Awesome. That's a lot. So um, any suggestions for supporting bile flow in terms of supplements? I know we'll get into specifics for liver function overall, but what would you say for someone who knows they have maybe some stagnation in the gallbladder or doesn't have a gallbladder at all? Yeah. Oh, so absolutely. The digestate enzyme and, and the reason being is that it actually has ox bile in there. Um, and so we think of bile as being maybe slightly acidic, but it's actually neutralizing. So we need that hydrochloric acid in the stomach 
to activate enzymes and break down the food particles. But remember, the bile gets really delivered to the small intestines. And the small intestines don't have um, that thickness that the gastric pouch does. So they're a little bit of the bile is actually buffering to the acidity. Um, So digestate is really fantastic because it's going to give you the ox bile, which is going to help with that emulsification, that utilization and absorption of fat, also supporting the detoxification. Um, But the digestate also has hydrochloric acid and then the enzyme components to break food particles down so that we're not passing distressing large particles to that intestinal lining and we're not overburdening that hepatic portal vein. So we're getting nice broken down food particles so the liver has the right active players in the bloodstream and we're also supporting that bile flow um, in light of uh, sluggish gallbladder gallbladder removal, or just a transition of the diet going from lower fat to higher fat. I had someone recently just message me. They had made my, um, uh, I think it's the carrot ginger bisque soup from the anti-anxiety diet, and it uses full fat coconut milk in it. And they mentioned that it was delicious, but they had diarrhea after. Why would that be? And that's because they didn't put out enough bile and lipase because their body's not used to a high fat diet. So they didn't have that emulsification or that gathering of the fats. And so the fat ran right through them and caused a loose, urgent stool. Sure. So that's the reason in our virtual ketosis program, we recommend as probably one of our top three, or maybe it's the top recommended, honestly, in between that and relax and regulate. But for folks transitioning to a higher fat diet, especially if you've been on a low fat diet or eating fat free products for years. That's one of our top supplement recommendations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. So you mentioned Ali, um, you know, in terms of symptoms of, uh, or signs of compromised liver function, you mentioned like the dark circles and jaundice, and that might be an extreme example. Um, but what are, um, some of the warning signs that tell us hey, our liver's a little sluggish or it's just struggling to keep up with doing all of these things it needs to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I think some that might go overlooked or thought of as like normal signs of aging (laughs) or just whatever would be like fatigue, uh, loss of appetite, because sometimes without that bile flow, you can be a little even nauseous or just lack of appetite. Um, But fatigue and weakness are big things that I think of because, again, there's just so many nutrients that are produced. And then that detoxification could be a a reason that you're kind of feeling that lethargy. So those are things to look into. Um, And then more severe would be when it's influencing us cognitively, like confusion, trouble concentrating, um, actually having enlarged or or tender um, to touch um, in that, that upper right quadrant of the belly, which is where that, that liver, uh, three pound liver is sit, sitting, um, having digestive disturbances like, uh, gas, uh, loose stool, uh, having variants within the, um, urine, which would be connected from that pass off to the kidneys, of course, but definitely could still be liver mediated. So darker colored urine, and then, um, blood changes as far as, elevated iron levels, easy bruising, because remember those clotting factors are regulated by the liver, uh, sweating and changes in body odor can actually be liver related if there's that backup of toxins. And then, um, that, like you said, more severe, we'll see jaundice. We can also see, um, 
yellow in the whites of our eyes. Um, and we can see then the, the dark circles under the eyes. Okay. So all things to look for when we're assessing for liver dysfunction. Um, what about substances that influence our liver function? So we talked about kind of the, the toxic burden overload that we all may at some point be experiencing some level yeah. of liver dysfunction, right? Especially if we go and have a night of too much drinking, it's kind of like the, the bucket tips over. So what, oh, yeah. um, what influences our liver function? So alcohol is a big one for sure. But like I said, it being water soluble, um, unless it is, of course, not that I'm giving it a free ride, but saying that the liver knows what to do with alcohol. No, there can absolutely be alcohol toxicity and there can be chronic alcoholism and that can severely drive things like cirrhosis or, you know, dysfunction to the liver as well as uh, fatty liver. And uh, we'll probably get into those in a little bit, but but alcohol is one that I think is the most common. And then other drugs, both uh, prescriptive drugs as well as um, you know illicit or street drugs, um, those are going to be having to be filtered by the liver. And then even things like environmental toxins that I started to mention, you know, so even if they're respiratory or topical, they're often going to still come up through that super highway because all, all paths lead back to the liver, basically, of like, if it's a substrate that the body can't use right away, it's going to go up through the liver. Um, and this is the variance when we're talking about like hormones, like birth control, for instance, um, you know, birth control, all oral hormone. Um, so whether it is a bioidentical progesterone pill um, versus the variance of a bioidentical progesterone cream, a cream can be delivered to the capillaries and if it's in a bioavailable form, that hormone can immediately be utilized. But an oral pill of all hormone, whether it's bioidentical or synthetic, is going to have to be processed through the liver. So if someone has sluggish liver or elevated liver enzymes, you'd want to really be mindful that everything you give them has to be filtered through that. And it's like a ping pong machine, essentially, of you know what's going to be that end product of metabolism. And if that's the... Uh, ideal if that's what was intended to get at the bottom of that that output, if you will. Um, so be mindful of that. Pretty much anything you take in an oral form is, is going to be an influencing the liver as a substrate. And that also goes into account we're talking about nutritional supplements. Um, so uh, stress on its own beyond the stress of a chemical or toxic environment, just stress itself uh, can influence the liver because cortisol is going to be produced as a substrate from those steroid building blocks. And then cortisol uh, as a primary stress hormone being one that is a glucocorticoid is going to demand the liver to produce glucose or blood sugar in time of stress. Uh, and then we also know the diet itself can create substrates because again, that's where we absorb along that intestinal lining. And a poor diet or one that has high amounts of processed foods um, especially in the form of fructose and high fructose corn syrup and refined corn products, um, those we're starting to actually see deemed as a hepatotoxin or a toxin to our liver um, as a you know processed food ingredient that many people are still consuming on a daily basis. Yep. And we're seeing a huge rise of NASH or non-alcohol um, steatorrhea, excuse me, um, non-alcohol um, fatty liver that we're seeing um, as a influence from the fructose consumption in our country. Yeah, 
And I've got a question for you about that in a sec here, but let's dig deeper. Allie. Jumping ahead. I'm jumping yeah, ahead. You are. <laughs> Sorry. Um, let's dig deeper a little bit into drug metabolism by the liver and both drugs um, that can damage and kind of why why this occurs. And maybe let's talk a little bit about um, some of the variants in liver enzyme production. So when... When blood enters the liver through that portal vein, um, this is where, I, I guess I didn't catch your question. What do, what do you want me to say, Becky? <laughs> let's talk about what drugs- Enzymes? Let's talk about drugs that are that are metabolized by the liver. You said pretty much anything oral. So let's just hit anything. Like the mm-hmm. main ones that would be especially concerning. Um, okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, so we, there's this family of enzymes. Um, we, we tend to call them cytochrome P450, but our, our cytochromes and this pat, this is the primary variability of individuals on a genetic level. Um, and our cytochrome P450 enzyme SNPs, if you will, which would be a, uh, polymorphism or, or genetic mutation, if you will, on how you metabolize varied pharmacological compounds. Um, so there's these CYPs, about a dozen enzymes that belong to a CYP1, 2, and 3 family. And um, there's about 70 to 80% of, our, of the drugs of, of all makeup that are going to be influenced through these enzyme pathways. And then there's, there's less influential pathways. But for, for lack of a better term, generally speaking, you're going to hear it called cytochrome P450. And um, basically, this is an enzyme pathway that is going to metabolize drugs. And drugs are going to be metabolized at different rates. Uh, it's going to be varied based on, again, genetic factors for the individual, as well as the pharmacological load that's hitting the individual, um, as well as the nutrient status of the individual and the hydration status and stress status of the individual. So, you know, the speed at which these particular drugs break down is going to be so individualized. Um, but we do worry about like acetaminophen or Tylenol um, toxicity. This is a very common one that we see like in emergency rooms, and they'll generally do a drip of, of glutathione and NAC and acetylcysteine. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but that's one of the go-tos as an acute intervention for liver toxicity, and, and Tylenol is a very prominent one. Um, as are NSAID drugs, NSAID drugs, we generally think of being more disruptive to the gut lining. Um, this is like our Aleve, our Motrin, our Advil, but they can also be a, a toxin to the liver. And then all of our steroids, so whether these are anabolic steroids for performance or steroids to the level of something you would think of as maybe not even that category, but birth control, remember birth control hormone being a steroid, all steroids are going to be metabolized through those enzymes as are antibiotics and antifungal drugs, as are our mood-stabilizing medications and antipsychotics, our blood pressure regulators, especially the antihypertensives that are in the diuretic family, and then um, even like anticonvulsants. And then there's particular uh, herbs that we watch out for that can be influential on the liver in an unfavorable way. Um, kava is one that's a known irritant to the liver. Um, and it's always important to ensure if you are consuming kava that it is third party assessed, the correct part of the plant is being utilized. 
Uh, Skullcap is another one that can have gray area, even comfrey tea. And then again, watching the amount of supplementation with vitamin A in a retinoic form, the, the carotenoid forms have very limited uh, risk for toxicity, but the retinoic, um, the more active form of vitamin A, and then supplementation with iron. Iron itself, as I mentioned, because the liver regulates so much of that in the red blood cell component, iron can then be a toxin if, if taken in too high of a dose to the liver. Okay. Awesome. So let's circle back and talk a little bit about, I guess we've hit on this pretty hard, but why is your liver liver so vulnerable to damage and um, effects of harmful diet or high toxin exposure? Why does this stuff kind of add up? Well, like I said, it just has so many different functions and, and the hepatic portal vein is really, you have to think of it as like a super highway. So there's not many defense mechanisms of what gets spilled into that. And so if you think of like a, you know, garden hose at full stream pressure, if there is a lot of mud and different substrates, all of that is going to get spurt out and, and the liver tries to protect what gets delivered and package and remove as rapidly as possible. Um, and so this is where we tend to get an upregulation of fat, not only in the idea of body fat storage and, and, you know, it being something that's aesthetically not pleasing, but when we're talking about fat and disease risk, we're talking about things like visceral fat, the fat that's closest to our organs. We're talking about, again, the onset of uh, fatty liver. And then that fat that insulates unfavorably or sits heavy on this vital organ is going to clog down the function of it. And over time, it just creates this very slippery slope where we start to see significant dysfunction within the entire systems of the body. Sure. So when you add up everything the liver has to do, and then you add environmental toxicity and prescription drugs and poor diet, it's just a, an overwhelm factor, I guess. For sure. Absolutely. Okay. And that's why we would recommend, um, we generally recommend doing a 10-day detox quarterly, um, both a nutritionally supported and using our 10-day detox packs to support both activation of toxins and excretion of toxins. So basically giving your liver a little bit of love every quarter, just like you would change the oil yes. in your car, right? Yes. January, April, July, <laughs> and you know, then September, really great timestamps to do this. And um, following the 10-day protocol, you can either keep that tight keto, you could even play with transitioning into keto while you're doing your detox, um, or if you're someone that's just doing a low glycemic diet, you can incorporate the legumes and beans if you tolerate those digestively. But it is, it's an upregulation of giving your liver some loving, keeping out the environmental, cosmetic, uh, alcohol, and other irritants, and really bathing with functional nutritional support components that help to drive liver function as well as support liver cells like the milk thistle, which is in the phase one enzyme pack. Um, and it, the whole idea of the 10 day detox provides a synergy of nutrients to both upregulate the activation as well as the excretion pathways and then protect the cells of the liver. So you're getting a really good thorough foundational support. And then the ebook talks you through ways to stimulate bile flow and such so that you're helping to support the functionality of the gland beyond this 10-day window. Okay, awesome. And I'll link to both our 10-day detox ebook and those detox packs 
we alluded to in the show notes, but I know I'm overdue for, for my quarterly detox this quarter. So that needs to happen yeah. soon. <laughs> um, so this um, next question, we, we get this a lot and um, we mentioned prior, let's talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, why it's occurring and why this is on such an upswing. Like I remember in my uh, dietetic rotations, I was working in a children's clinic, outpatient children's clinic. Yes. And we had so many kiddos. It was remarkable. I just, I didn't expect to see that. So let's talk about why this is happening and um, the impact that keto can actually have on fatty liver. Yeah. So you might also see it called NASH for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Um, But basically this is inflammation and liver cell damage along with fatty deposits in excess in the liver. And so generally speaking, obviously with the non-alcoholic, this was a condition, this steatohepatitis was really seen predominantly, like you said, decades ago, like preceding the 80s. only in alcoholics. And um, unfortunately, we're starting to see a significant rise. um, And a lot of this ties back to fructose and dysmetabolic syndrome. So the, the big important thing to understand is that Fatty liver is not (laughs) caused by eating too much fat. In fact, (laughs) just to say again, fatty liver is not caused by eating too much fat. It's by the liver producing too much fat in a stressed environment. So the ketogenic diet actually can be one of the best therapies to help reduce non-alcoholic fatty liver or even to support inflammation of the liver um, in a supportive diet. And we'll we'll get into that in a moment as far as still getting plant-based compounds and, and what have you. But fructose, let's talk more about that first. So fructose is one of the lead causes of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And if you think of those poor children in Texas Children's Hospital or wherever you were rotating, baby formula has corn syrup solids in it. And baby formula also, I'm like so angry, trying to talk slowly. Baby formula also has fructose sugars in it. And many, quote unquote, pediatrician recommended products and health stamped products for babies, toddlers, children have fructose in a very refined form. And fructose, unlike glucose, um, is only metabolized by the liver. So that's something important to identify. Um, Glucose can be used by, you know, every cell of the body. Fructose is only metabolized by the liver, and it's actually processed in a similar way to alcohol as far as how it creates havoc on this primary metabolic gland. Um, So there's not insulin signaling required with fructose absorption. Um, And we are seeing that because of this surge of fructose and the, the liver not being sure what to do with the excess reserves, it metabolizes fructose directly into fat. And it isn't able to use it as cellular energy like it is glucose or or use that glycogen storage. So the first line of defense would be across the board, removing high fructose corn syrup in all forms, removing excess fruit juices or fruit juices in general, 
and definitely agave, which is also a, a form of pure fructose. Um, so remember that is not a healthy sweetener that can drive that hepatotoxin activity as well. And then if you're doing fruits with your kids, which is which is within reason, making sure that you're pairing those with proteins or fats so that they're not getting as dynamic of a spike. Because fruits themselves actually have glucose as well. It's important to note, you know, so it's not like a piece of fruit is 100% fructose in makeup. Um, but fructose and high fructose corn syrup sure is. <laughs> so it's a difference. Yeah. And that agave just gets me so revved up because I still see clients using it. It was recommended what, I guess it was back in my vegan days. So I don't know, five, seven years ago, yeah. um, recommended as you know a sweetener that would be safe for diabetics. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> This is where we started to see, you know, an uptick in addition to all those other compounding factors, but just gets me so revved up that they still even sell it. And even like crystalline fructose, like watching out for health foods where they'll use a lot of like white grape juice concentrate or, you know, it's a, it's a tricky way to get that fructose up there. And, um, it's something you want to watch out for, for certain. So if we were to see this come through in clinic, we would automatically put someone on a ketogenic diet, correct? Absolutely. And we would put them on a high-dose EPA DHA um, to reduce the inflammation so that the liver can metabolize. Because the issue is often if you're in, uh, remember, the liver processes your fat as well. And the liver is the gland that has to make ketones. So if the depends on the functionality of the liver, that person might need to kick off with a 10-day detox. Sure. And then, you know, they might need to go low glycemic and we might need to give them cellular antioxidants to get their glutathione stores up and an EPA DHA extra and then get them keto adapted. Got it. So maybe slingshotting right into keto, depending on the, the state of dysfunction, could just drive more dysfunction. So pending the individual, all of those things first. Um, yeah. Let's talk about um, markers we would use, Allie, to assess for liver function, not only looking for fatty liver, but just assessing function of the liver in general. Yeah, sure. So ALT and AST are the common ones. And, and these are this is an enzyme um, that's measured in the blood in like a comprehensive metabolic panel. ALT more specifically to um, the alkaline liver transferase. Um, so it's looking more specifically to the liver function itself, while AST can be kind of whole body processing. But both are definitely indicators of liver function. Um, also looking at our, uh, of course, bilirubin, our total protein, our albumin, um, we could also look at our lipids um, as a marker. Like I said, especially if you're seeing um, a dynamic variable within um, the cholesterol changes in your body because your liver produces that. So that could give you maybe not good or bad, but a variance of change. And then your ALP or your alkaline phosphatase um, is going to be another marker of uh, liver function as well and, and how it's regulating pH in the body. Um, and so really looking at these variables in, in the whole world. Did I say GGT already? No, you didn't. Let's get into okay. that one a teeny bit. Yeah. So so your ALT, AST, ALP, bilirubin, total protein um, will all generally be in a comprehensive metabolic panel. Some will also have um, albumin and then lipids would be in a cholesterol panel. Um, but GGT is always going to be a requested add-on or it might be in a hep hepatology panel or a liver assessment panel. Um, but GGT um, stands for um, gamma glutathione transferase. 
Um, and this is going to look at the utilization of that grand mama antioxidant glutathione, which is the highest or most potent antioxidant in the body. So if that is off, that's going to show high taxation of um, toxic overload in the body. Um, or if it's um, very insufficient, you might want to actually then look at glutathione as a serum marker as well. Sure. And that could be someone who has a genetic SNP that has to do with the way they, they utilize glutathione in the first place. Um, sure. And then they might be an individual, you know, who needs to supplement with something like cellular antiox. I know we've talked about a little bit here and we'll get back to. Um, and then just in terms of um, where you could get these panels run, like you said, a, a comprehensive metabolic panel should cover most of these. We also do have, if you're kind of, um, you know, in the camp of doing your own lab tests, we do have our weight loss plus panel, which would look at the ALT, AST, and um, lipids, at least of this list. And bilirubin and it does, um, doesn't it? Yep. ALP, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. not, GG, not GGT though. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a separate add-on. Mm-hmm. I will link to that in our show notes. Um, let's jump into supporting liver function um, in terms of foods that actually are going to help with things like blood sugar regulation, um, things that are going to support our bile flow, like we talked about in detoxifications. What are like the main uh, yeah. staples? So, I mean, on? I think the biggest way we look at it as far as supporting the liver and um, optimizing function in the liver is how to reduce the stress to the liver. So starting with eating real foods, that means less, you know, I always kind of joke, if you're, if you can understand what you're putting in your body, your body can probably understand what to do with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're eating a packaged chemical shitstorm, as I like to call it, or, you know, something that doesn't make sense. Um, and we can't understand a lot of the added ingredients that's going to be sludge for the tank as far as the processing system. And that's also going to interfere with how your liver as a UPS system builds and makes the things that you need. Right. So eating whole real foods is definitely something as a priority. The next thing you can do to reduce the tax on the liver is regulate your blood sugar. So if you don't have to keep calling the liver on guard every time you drop into a hypoglycemic slump, um, then that's going to be a huge distress for the liver, um, a huge you know, activation point. So if you can get your blood sugar into more of a regulated speed bump versus mountain peaks of high blood sugar and valleys of lows... That means that the liver doesn't have to work in overdrive in um, constant excess glycogen that it's trying to store and package or going through that process of gluconeogenesis. And you'd potentially even consider a ketogenic diet or um, at least a low glycemic diet to accomplish that. Um, And then looking at now abundant-based things, so eating clean, Eating a low glycemic or ketogenic diet is the second recommendation. The third thing I would look at is a bile stimulator. So foods that are bitter or sour, these are things like bitter greens um, or roots. So dandelion greens are one of the more common ones we think of as like a liver detoxifier. Uh, Bragg's apple cider vinegar. Um, Really eating your two to three cups of leafy greens per day that I always recommend and getting a good variety of things like mizuna and radicchio and and different um, endive. Uh, These are going to create that bile stimulation and flow. And we know if we taste bitter that we create more saliva. That's also that same type of mechanism of what drives that bile um, flow as well. 
And then we might consider detoxifying. So we, we have the foods that support bile flow and liver function or liver uh, push, if you will. We also want to think of things that provide antioxidants and aid in detoxification. So our glutathione-rich foods like cumin, which is a seasoning very rich in glutathione, and avocado, um, also thinking of our cruciferous vegetables like our cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, all of these being great supporters for liver detoxification, as well as rich source of cysteine and glutathione. And these two hand in hand are going to help with protection against fatty liver or help to protect against liver uh, distress on a cellular level. Uh, being abundant with your herbs, spices, and seasonings. So using things like turmeric. And um, we've seen a lot of studies on the role of turmeric to not only reduce inflammation, but also stimulate bile flow and aid in both phase one and phase two of detoxification support. Um, so really great anti-inflammatory there. And then herb seasonings and spices like uh, using anything from rosemary to basil to oregano to thyme. Um, a lot of antioxidant capacity we get in our fresh herbs and seasonings and spices. Uh, we might also consider within our hydration goals, trying to do um, green tea. So green tea would be a great thing for that EGCG compound um, and the antioxidants delivered. Uh, we've seen in some studies that green tea can lower liver inflammation. Um, and then tea also works as a diuretic, so it can help with that fluid flow in the body. Awesome. And I'll link to, I know our turmeric lemonade is a favorite for sure um, for getting in those those herbs and spices. And it's also got um, lemon juice, the high amount of, obviously it's a lemonade, um, high amount of lemon yep. juice to support that bile flow as well. Um, and then in terms of supplemental support, um, what would you bring in to kind of up the ante? Um, we talked about digest aid as kind of an ongoing one, but I don't even think we've yeah. talked about our ultimate detox. Formula. No. So <laughs> digest aid would be, yeah, on a daily basis for sure, especially if you have any gallbladder issues or don't have a gallbladder. And then, you know, as your digestive system regulates, you can reduce that to as needed per highest fat meal and things like that. Um, super turmeric would be one I would definitely recommend for liver support across the board. Again, we just went into the mechanisms. Um, and that's going to have four to six times the bioavailability of a curcuminoid blend. And it provides one full gram per capsule and is mixed with turmeric oil. That's kind of the magic of that emulsification of the gel capsule versus a dried curcumin turmeric powder from another line. So super turmeric at one a day as a base, and then you can pulse that up as an anti-inflammatory. Cellular antiox would be one for certain, which has N-acetylcysteine and glutathione and B6. So again, N-acetylcysteine is what they would use in an IV if you had liver toxicity and you were hospitalized. So definitely a good, powerful tool as a antioxidant that can help to reduce not only free radicals, but support your liver cells and aid with that processing. And then ultimate detox is something you'd consider. We talked about this in the um, hangover episode. Anytime I have a second glass of wine or more, I always have three ultimate detox at bed and three the following morning. Or I might just take a Reset, Restore, Renew 10-day detox pack 
that evening and that morning. And those packs of the 10-day detox packs is what you would use during the 10-day detox that we talked about a couple minutes ago. So that would be my artillery. And I would probably also throw in a B-complex. Um, so the B-complex would be really important, especially for things like choline. Um, choline is a huge nutrient that's found in egg yolk and liver, a big supporter for liver and bile flow, um, and uh, definitely one that plays a huge role with mood and, and memory maintenance as well. Awesome. I was about to throw that in there if you didn't. Um, and we talked about that a lot back in episode 102. We covered the role of choline in the body. But if we have dealt with liver dysfunction um, or we're dealing with this ongoing or you know, wondering what other nutrients could kind of play into liver dysfunction, I would say a micronutrient panel would be a good place to start for sure. Um, cause then you can assess, you know, other specifics. Are we actually deficient in glutathione and is that driving more dysfunction or is it choline or is it all of the things? Um, and that helps us to kind of tie some of these together as well. Absolutely. Awesome. And then connecting that to foods, yeah. I think, you know, that's always where we like to go and end. Um, the idea of eating liver to support your liver is definitely something to consider. So, um, you know, liver, as we discussed, great source of vitamin A. It's very mineral rich. So we're talking about things like zinc and copper and selenium. B vitamins are going to be very bioavailable, one of the best forms of choline and folate, um, as we mentioned prior. And then even things like CoQ10, um, which are direct fuel for our mitochondria or energy cells in our body. So playing with our liver pate on the blog, we just made a um, peanut butter pate. We have a savory pate as well. Uh, we have liver pills if you want to just cut from a raw form and freeze to kill off pathogens and just take them. Um, and now there's a bunch of brands that do that as well, like Epic uh, brand has liver pills and they also have liver bites as like a jerky form. And then um, I think your meatloaf would be one worth mentioning, yeah, right? I love that combination because I always tell people, if you put caramelized onions and bacon on anything, <laughs> you can eat it because liver is, you know, it, it is that metallic taste depending on whether you're doing beef or chicken liver, uh, but you do have that metallic taste. Um, so bacon and, and onion help to really cover that up. So these are made in a mini meatloaf form um, and done with uh, bacon inside and then a little bit of bacon on top. And you can actually freeze them if you're going for a goal of liver, you know, like we said, twice a month, you could freeze them and just take out your two mini muffins as a serving, yeah. um, maybe during your, your week that you're doing um, liver and keep them on hand because um, it makes a pretty big, I think it makes 12 of them. So that might be a lot. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. And then, you know, again, the other foods that are non-liver specific will be back to, we'll link that, that turmeric lemonade, getting in your leafy greens, so pretty much any salad. And we'll also link how to do an apple cider vinegar shooter. So that's something that's worth doing that brags apple cider vinegar to stimulate that bile flow. And that's something you could start every morning with, or at least a couple mornings a week, um, and definitely going to help to upregulate that, that flow so you don't get stagnation, bile stones, and distress um, to the liver or gallbladder. 
Awesome. So I'll make sure we link back to all of those products as well as the recipes that we discussed. Um, so I hope we've given you guys some really good tips on how to support your liver. And if nothing else, you now appreciate all of the things that your liver actually does for you and will give it some extra loving. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.